Will you turn with me in your Bible, please, to the book of 2 Thessalonians? I have page 988, if that helps you. It's in the New Testament. After all the Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and you'll find the Thessalonians. Second, or the first Thessalonians chapter 5 is what we're turning to. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Yeah, First Thessalonians, excuse me, chapter 5. And we're going to be at the very end, starting in verse 12. Just if you want to turn back there. When I was uh, going through the seminary to make ends meet, um, we did a lot of things. And one of the things that I did was DJ'd weddings. And it was awesome and a good experience and difficult at the same time, um, especially late Saturday nights and then preaching Sunday morning and stuff. And so I DJ'd probably, I don't know, 100 weddings or more, a lot of weddings. And so I saw um, really, really expensive high-class weddings. I saw really um, not, yeah, moderate weddings. I saw outside weddings. I saw inside weddings. I saw weddings in barns. I saw weddings in big hotels. I saw weddings everywhere. Um, City Museum, by the way, is the worst place. Don't ever get a wedding there, ever. Please, I beg you, because it's very difficult. They put the head table under a giant, like, industrial air conditioning unit that was, like, the size of this section of the stage. And I, you can't win. I'm doing sound. That thing kicked on. It was so loud. They were like, can you turn it up? I, I, it was, I couldn't turn it up anymore. Anyway, City Museum. Love it or hate it. But I saw a lot of weddings. And have you ever been to a wedding where someone has passed out? You ever been to a wedding where somebody's passed out? I remember being at one wedding one time where the groom was telling the groomsmen, he's like, guys, don't lock your knees. Don't lock your knees, all right, we're good? Don't lock your knees. And then halfway through the wedding, he's like locking his knees. And you know, he's, he's just going. When somebody passes out, it's the worst too because every, you know, it takes all the attention and you gotta grab that person. And we had a little mantra, if somebody passes out, you just keep going. You know, that's. So you just pull that person to the side, and that's how it works. When I was in the military, if you were in formation and somebody passed out, same kind of concept, man, you, it was hilarious, because you'd see somebody just step over that person, and all of a sudden, they'd just kind of whisk them back, and they're in the back, and then way in the back, there's a bunch of medics running over, like, you okay? But everybody else just stands there. Just, that's how it works. But <laughs> weddings are great, aren't they? Don't you love weddings? They're good. Sometimes, don't you just want the wedding part to kind of be done so you can get to the reception part and all the stuff? It's funny how weddings work. It's funny seeing a broad spectrum of people when they are going through weddings in various types, especially if somebody passes out in the wedding, because it makes for a lot of stories. And uh, one time I was in a wedding and somebody passed out like that, and it was hard to recover because everybody was focused on the individual that had passed out. But, thankfully, they were safe and okay. Another wedding I did had 14 bridesmaids. 14 bridesmaids. It was in a place that hold, held thousands of people. They had over 1,000 people in attendance at the wedding, and it looked like nobody showed up because the, the room was so big. 14 bridesmaids, 14 groomsmen, just getting down the aisle, somebody was going to pass out because it just took so long. And so thankfully, nobody passed out because they were also stood up on these stairs that were really tall. And so everybody was just kind of there. Nobody passed out. Everything was fine. But it was funny being in this wedding that just seemed to take forever to get to the actual wedding part of just watching people come. You know, sometimes in life, it feels like either we're right on the edge of passing out, trying to convince ourselves not to lock our knees, or that things are just taking forever. Have you ever held on to a word or promise of God 
and it just seems like it's just taken eons to get there. We're going to read in the Bible here about God's grace upon us. And if Paul is writing this book to the Thessalonican church, and he's telling the people in Thessalonica to stand firm on the word of God. And in fact, they've had a lot of heresies and other teachings that have come up and people who have been talking to them about all these ideas, things that were not biblical, things that were uh, challenging their faith. And in particular, what was being challenged was their view of Christ returning and what was going to happen in the end. And so Paul is writing this book to help the people hold fast to the faith. And here's what he says to them as final instructions. Let's read together 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to start reading at verse 12. Here's what he says. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays any evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Jesus Christ for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under an oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. The word of the Lord. What do, you, what do you think when you're reading this? Is it, do you get a feeling? Does it feel very at ease and happy? Is it how you would end like a birthday card? If you're writing a birthday card to an eight-year-old, I had to think through a lot. How am I going to write this card <laughs> to Jonah? And so uh, we got a dinosaur card. It's awesome. It's the coolest dinosaur card. But I made a fatal mistake because the dinosaur card does not open. It's like felt, and it was just one piece. And the arms and legs moved, which was super cool. But then I only had the back to write on. And I used a pen that smeared everywhere. So that's awesome. Didn't go great. Now, Paul is writing this letter. He's not writing to an eight-year-old's birthday party. He's writing to the church who's under attack. And you can feel an urgency in what he's saying, can't you? And a lot of his letters, he ends them kind of in flowery ways, lovely ways, like you would end a letter. I'm thinking of you. I miss you. Greetings from everyone in St. Louis. I hope you're well. God bless you. See you soon. Thanksgiving's going to be great. Like We end letters like that, don't we? Paul doesn't end that way. He's got little statements of things that are very important to him, especially when we're talking about holding fast to the faith of God and to the gospel and to our hope that Christ is returning and that he's good. And so the end of this letter, in its urgency, is describing to the people what he wants them to do. And one of the things that he says here in verse 16 is really interesting. He says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Now, Paul is writing many of these letters from prison. The truth is that the church is being persecuted. The church, the church is going through times where it's very difficult for them to do business or get contracts. And if they won't bow the knee to Caesar and pledge allegiance to the Romans, then they can't do certain kinds of business. 
Uh, we work closely with a church in Pakistan. Did you know that in Pakistan, under the caste system, Christians, because they're not Muslim, are not allowed to do jobs that are deemed classy. So anything that's remedial, Christians can do. But you cannot be a CEO there. You cannot climb the corporate ladder. You can be a garbage collector. That sounds great. And so now some of the Christians have made it into different industries and different things, but it's very difficult because once you get to a certain level and they find out you're a Christian, you're ineligible for any promotion. And the church in this time is experiencing a similar thing where for them just to survive and to feed their kids and to grow their families and do business, they're under constant pressure to change their beliefs and change their, their moorings in the gospel and instead to align themselves with other things because it's more popular and it's easier to do. And guess what? It's the same today. We may not get held back from jobs and things, but think about the pressure online to not say something you're going to regret, whatever that is. And if you say something for Jesus, immediately be ready for the backlash because yep. it's going to come. And if you're a teacher and you say the wrong thing in the classroom, and I'm not talking about immoral things, I'm talking about saying Jesus is Lord, you better be ready to lose your job. Mm -hmm. And so in a similar way, they're experiencing in this time something like we are experiencing now. And here's what Paul the Apostle to them says, rejoice always. What a funny emotion rejoicing is. And I think about weddings and think about funny weddings and great weddings and the best weddings you've had. Think about the best wedding you've ever been to. It's probably your own if you're married <laughs> or a close friend or somebody. The best wedding you've ever been to. What makes a wedding great? Like, really, you can answer. It's okay. What makes a wedding great? If you don't want to answer, that's okay. But what do you think? Love, affection. Love, affection. So if you see the bride and groom fighting during the reception, that wedding feels a little off, right? Yeah. Yeah, if you see the mother of the bride and the father of the groom fighting at the reception, it kind of just makes that wedding a little weird, right? But if there's love and affection and excitement, wedding feels great. What other things makes a wedding good? Relationships focused on the Lord. Have you ever been to a wedding with somebody who uh, very clearly just got their ordination today in a 45-minute internet course? You know what I'm talking about? I've DJed some of those weddings where somebody stood in front and was like, uh, here, beloved, gathered, uh, here, <sighs> um, do you want to get married? Yeah? And then they play a song, and they're like, here's a vow, married. What in the world is happening? So you can have couples that are focused on the Lord makes it better, but also there's something about God making a covenant I remember the first time I officiated a wedding, actually did a wedding and married somebody, not my wife, but you know, married the couple. And the weight of God's presence there at, at the front was stronger than I anticipated. Because I went into it ready and sober and excited, but the Lord was there and he did not take it lightly. And so there's, there's a weight to marriage that makes it also great, doesn't it? What else makes a wedding good? Food. Food. Yes. Yes. Not peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but toasted ravioli. That's going to make it good. Yeah. Food is going to make a wedding good. It's, it's, there's rejoicing. There's feast. If you're going to rejoice always, does that mean that you're just you know, walking around like this all the time? No, you're at the buffet. 
You ever go to a buffet and when you walk in, listen, we went to a buffet with the kids recently, mistake. I have five children. Don't go to a, a buffet with five children because it was, yeah, it was very difficult to, you know, one child had like six rolls on their plate. Like, where did you get those? They're reaching up, grabbing them. I don't, who knows what's happening right now? I'm sorry for the, whatever they touched. I have no idea. No idea. Another, here's Benjamin in line for the, the ribeye. He's, he's waiting. He's got, excuse me, I'm, we're in line here. Okay, Benny, good job. Anyway, buffet. You know, you can't go into a buffet and be upset. You walk in the buffet and you're like, well, we're going to eat some. There's cobbler, guys. There's cobbler and ice cream. All right, we're good. That's how it feels, doesn't it? And you rejoice at the spread of the meal. Have you ever been to somebody's house who cooked too, too little food accidentally? It's, all, it's happened to everybody, right? Like we've, everybody that's happened to, everybody. And then they're under pressure and they're pulling out like saltines because they're like, I'm so sorry. It will sap the rejoicing out of the room if there is not enough food. Will it not? Yes. We serve an abundant God. Praise the Lord. That's good. What else makes a wedding great? Joyous. It's joyous. How do you know it's joyous? People are smiling. Yeah, people are excited. There's music. Yes. Now let me ask you this. How do you rejoice before the Lord always? Because Paul says rejoice always. But here's the reality. We don't live in the wedding. So we're all going to go home. I'm going to go home and my grass is too long right now. And I'm going to get home tired and I'm going to be like, I got to cut the grass. And it's not going to feel buffet. It's not. Let's be honest. Because it doesn't all the time, does it? There's hard things. So how, if Paul tells the church who's undergoing this pressure, the same pressures we have. If he's telling the church, going through the same difficulties that we are, that they should rejoice always, maybe it's not an emotion. And I'm here to tell you from the Bible, rejoicing is not an emotion. It's a state. It's a place that you are. You're made into a rejoicer because of what Christ has done. And in Christ, you rejoice always. I think there are three elements to rejoicing. If you're in the state of rejoicing, the first state of rejoicing you have is relief. Relief. Think about a wedding. You're at the wedding. You're watching everything. It's great. If people are on pins and needles and the bride looks like she is about to fall over, not a great wedding. But if things are going well and everybody's in a good attitude and there's a general aura of relief, like finally these two can be together. That's a good thing. And you know what I'm talking about there, right? Where, and you hear it. You hear it in the, the, all the toasts. Inevitably, somebody stands up and says, finally, finally, she found this guy. And I was like, that, he's from the Lord. And there's somebody from the guys like, finally, somebody who's going to help this dude not be a dummy. So great. <laughs> She is what he needs, you know. And, but there's this sense of relief at what God has done. And in the gospel, there is great relief because the reality of the gospel is that we were enemies of God, sinners and traitors before him who were due, done, committed to being children of wrath, under the wrath of God. What our destiny was was only punishment. 
Have you ever gotten in trouble in the car as a kid? And you're driving home, and your parents say to you, when you get home, you will get a spanking. And you're like, oh my god, I'm done. My life is over. And the rest of the car ride, silence. And you get back, and you walk in the house, and you're like, maybe they won't remember. And then they're like, come with me. Ah! It's the worst, isn't it? The worst. That happened to one of my kids recently, and he got really in trouble. I won't tell you who it is. <laughs> he walked in the house, and I said, come with me. And he stood in front of me, and he's, he went and got, we use a spoon. We take our children, and we say, listen, I love you. You've disobeyed. I'm going to correct you. Am I angry with you? They say, no. I say, am I hurting you because I don't like you? No. I say, I'm going to give you a spanking now on your booty because of what? And they'll say, I disobeyed. I say, that's right. How did you disobey? I punched my sister. Yes, you did. We use our muscles to help, not to hurt, or whatever it is. And so now we're going to have the spanking. And then after the spanking, I tell them right away, you are a covenant child. You're a kingdom boy. You belong to Jesus. Your name is, and I tell them their whole name, and I tell them, I am helping train you so that when you hear the Lord say a command to you, you obey right away from the heart because I belong to Jesus too and I want you to follow him and I love you. And he says, I'm sorry, and we have hugs, and then in here we're restored, right? And now, there are other ways of doing things with children. I'm just giving you one, and I didn't mean to have a big debate on whether or not we should give spankings, although let's get a coffee. We can talk about that. But I'm telling you that because there's fear when you walk in. And my son went and got the spoon, and he stood in his room terrified. Not that I was going to hurt him, just of the spoon, because he knows this is not going to be pleasant. And I took it, and I set it down, and I said, I'm going to show you mercy. Oh. Because then we talk about, what does mercy mean? Because you know what? God does not always crush us. He gives us mercy. He gives us grace. And so part of the whole process is, I want him to know what God is like. So he comes to the Lord quickly and says, Lord, forgive me. Instead of hiding it and trying to get out of spankings and becoming like a mini lawyer. Have you ever had a three-year-old be a lawyer? No, but I shouldn't get a spanking because you said, I okay, I took the applesauce, but, you know, and there's lawyers. Like, what are you doing? You're, you're disobeyed. And this is what happens with kids. And so we're training these things in. But there's this great sense of relief when we understand the gospel, that we were due the punishment for sin. The spanking was a done deal. We were by nature children of wrath. The Bible says... All of us have sinned, have rebelled from God, have fallen away. All of us have gone our own way like sheep. We've gone astray. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Because the punishment for sin is death. There is no spanking punishment for sin. It's death. And God took his only son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who's God, he's a spirit, but he became a man, fully man and fully God at the same time. I don't understand that. But he was a baby nursing at his mother's breast and upholding the universe by the word of his power at the same time. And he took the punishment for sin. The Bible tells us he became sin, the object of God's wrath on our behalf, that we would be saved from our sin. How incredible. And the first thing you feel is relief. It's relief. Because there's a debt we cannot pay. 
man, could you imagine not just things that our government has done for giving little pieces of debt, but somebody who is utterly given over to debt. And especially if that punishment is severe, like the British used to send people to Australia. I mean, we think it'd be cool to visit Australia, but for them, that was like, you're in the third circle of hell or something. So they got sent away to, to live a debtor's life and basically be a slave to try to pay off their debt. H horrible, a lot of them died. So the punishment of being sent away was horrible. Could you imagine standing in the court and you have a million dollars of debt, you can never repay it. In 10 lifetimes, you can never repay it. You can never do it. And the judge says, it's paid. Not, I forgive you, but my son paid it for you. So it's done. Your account is clear. Not only that, but I'm gonna bring you into fellowship with myself, that you will also be my son so that I can have communion with you. How amazing, how amazing. The sense of relief we have in the gospel creates rejoicing in us because we hear of the gospel in a song and tears come to our eyes, we say, Lord, thank you. I just, I'm so, I'm so relieved to walk in your grace. The first place rejoicing comes from is relief. The second place it comes from is excitement. And this is usually what we think of in an emotion of rejoicing. If somebody is rejoicing, they're usually rejoicing in pool holes or in once upon a time, the St. Louis Rams, once upon a time, a long time ago. Yeah, but they're rejoicing in some feat or some thing. And it really is just excitement. I'm so excited the Blues won the Stanley Cup. I'm so excited my friends are getting married. I'm so excited I'm getting married. I'm so excited whatever. It's graduation finally after all that work. This is so exciting. I got a new job. Rejoice with me. And we use that all the time, don't we? I found a dollar on the street. Yes, rejoice. You know, that's how we do it, right? And a lot of times the problem is we attach that emotion to what we think God is doing in our lives. We find a dollar on the street and we're like, oh, Lord, you truly love me. I'm rejoicing. Then we lose a dollar and we're like, Lord, I'm, do you even care about me? What's happening? And we, we flip quickly, don't we? But this emotion of excitement is part of rejoicing. Have you ever met somebody who's rejoicing and they're like, I'm rejoicing? Just rejoicing over here. I don't know. What kind of rejoicing is that? Then you meet somebody like David Hong. That guy's rejoicing about everything, and it's great. And you're like, wow, this guy, he's excited about things. And that's a great thing, isn't it? Shouldn't we be excited about what God's doing? Have you met Christians who are like, yeah, Lord, save me? I mean, the Lord, you know, he's good. <sighs> Paid my debts, but electric bill's still there. This is where the spirit of self-control takes over. And the excitement comes because David even said this, wake up, my soul. Wake yourself up and look at what God has done and remember what he's done and let the excitement come again. And stop living your life based on the commerce of excitement to tell whether or not you are a true Christian or whether you're successful in the faith. It's not true. What is true is we know him we steadfastly follow him. We love him. We obey him. We have this great relief because of the gospel. And then when we remind ourselves of all those things, excitement starts to grow in us again, even if we feel the crushing weight of all the things that are pushing us down. 
And we say, Lord, I can stand up under this. And I'm tempted to, to put myself down. And instead, Lord, I'm going to look up to you. I'm going to fix my eyes on you. I'm going to trust you. We had a testimony of that today from Jackie, didn't we? Just about regular life. And you know what? God is there in regular life. And he's there in the hospital room. And he's there at night when the thoughts come. And he's there in the morning when you're not sure if you have the strength. And he's there in the morning when you feel great in the good and the bad. And we let excitement come because we say, Lord, I'm going to rejoice in you. And a great way to do that, Paul tells us, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What is God's will for you? What is his will? Lord, show me what am I supposed to do? Should I take the job? Should I not take the job? This is what we think of all the time, right? Should I move to Pittsburgh? Should I move to Quebec? Don't ever move to Quebec. Should I move to California? Should I move to Venezuela? What should I do? Lord, I, I want to do something. Tell me your will. And Paul, the apostle, is telling us the will. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added. He'll show you if you should move to Colorado. But we get so fixated on the thing that we miss the source. We need to fix on the source. And excitement comes and rejoicing comes when we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The third place that we find rejoicing is in gratitude. It's in gratitude. This is different than thankfulness. Thankfulness is submitting yourself before the Lord and saying, Lord, thank you. But a state of gratitude is rejoicing. It's, it's almost synonymous in some ways. Because of what he's done, I'm going to serve him. Because of what he's done, I live a life of gratitude. Because of what he's done, now I will serve him in my attitude, in my life, in my hands, in my mouth, in my thoughts, in everything. And gratitude starts coming out of us. You know, gratitude is the number one defense against selfishness. It's gratitude at what God has done. And selfishness is sin. At the end of the day, every sin comes down to selfishness. And instead, we look to God with gratitude, and it, it changes our hearts. And we remember all that he's done, and the relief of the gospel comes to us, and suddenly excitement is there, and the problems may still be there. But as we walk, we walk in gratitude. And this is why people say, like, how do you do it? And you say, I don't know. But God is so good. God is so good. Okay, I need three volunteers who can move around. Four volunteers who can move around. Okay, Michael, come on up. Tony, come on up. Tony went like this, so I saw he volunteered. <laughs> he was actually just moving his phone, but I, I was like, oh, it's him. It's great. Luke, you mind? Okay, one more. All right, Jeff. Awesome. Okay, Jeff, you are going to be, you are going to come up here on stage. Tony, you're going to be Jesus, okay? You're going to be God the Father. Come on up. You're going to be the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Jesus, you're in the middle. Here's the Godhead. Here's people. Now, people are, by nature, children of wrath. Can you go to the very back of the room? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> They're far away, far away from God, right? Far away, because they, don't, they can't come up. And there's a great barrier. That barrier is holiness and justice cannot have sin in its presence. The problem is 
The Father loves them. He calls them. He wants them. And it's out of his love for us that he sends his son. So his son comes down. Come on down. And he's going to become a man. Because a man has to pay the punishment for sin. Man sinned, a man has to die. But this man is not just a man. He's God. Takes on flesh. And now here's the problem. As much as attractive as Luke is, he's really in filthy rags. And Luke, lay down on the floor, Luke. Luke is dead in his trespasses. He's dead. He's, you can't even see him. He's back there. He's dead. And the son says, are you, are you sure? Because the father wants to give as a bride, I know it's a guy, it's the church, as a bride, his son, this people. And out of love and obedience to the father, the son comes. Now in a wedding, what happens? This is the wedding. We're at the wedding, right? We've got the altar. The Lord, the Lord is officiating. Holy Spirit is witnessing. Here's the groom. Where's the bride? What is she supposed to do? In our tradition, she comes out. She can't. Where is she? Look. She's dead. She's on, literally on the ground right there. And so it pleases the father to crush the son for our iniquity. And he looks back and he says, is there any way that this cup can pass from me? Did you know that in the communion meal, when Jesus is standing and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. He takes the cup during the time in Jewish tradition when people would propose marriage during the Passover. Now he asks the father, can you take this cup from me? Is there any other way? What is the cup? It's the cup of wrath that's going to be poured out. And Jesus knows it's going to be bad. It's going to cost everything. And the father says, no. So what does the son do? He turns, he sets his face like flint toward Jerusalem, and he goes to the bride. You've got to go to Luke. You're going to lift her up. You're going to have to carry her. <laughs> this way. So Luke, you're going to you're gonna have to figure it out, guys. There's a reason you were chosen. There he is. All right. Bring it down. Now, she's dead. Okay, you can put her down. And he dies. He dies for her. And by faith, the Bible tells us when he died, you died. And when he rose, you rose. And so now he's alive. you got to give everybody a hair flip because you're the bride. And he says, oh, Jesus, I found you. That's what everybody says, right? But he carried us down. He saved us. And now he's here. And then he says, I'm filling you with power. I'm going to my father's right hand. Don't worry, I'll be with you always. So you go back up. Here. And the father's pleased. But here's the bride, right? She's now spiritually seated with him in heavenly places. David read that to us earlier. But she's also still here, being sanctified. And so what happens is it pleases the Father and the Son to dispatch the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ, God, the third person of the Trinity, you're dispatched. Go! And he comes, mighty rushing wind, Acts chapter 2. He comes upon them. 
fire. He's here. He's forming her. He's helping her. He's changing her. And more and more and more, she is made into the beautiful bride she's meant to be. And meanwhile, we have a king who's seated on the throne. He's ruling and reigning. He's over all things. And down here, it seems like onslaughts of stuff are happening and you're getting pushed and all this bad stuff is happening and real suffering does happen and the Holy Spirit is using it to form Christ in you and make you beautiful because he's coming again to take his bride. And still, she won't walk down the aisle toward him. He will come to her. He will come to her. So then, then that day he comes back. Come on down, Jesus. And now, <laughs> turn around. Awesome. And now, here they are, right? No, you got it all the way. There you go. Here they are. Holy Spirit presented to the Father in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's you. Surrounded. Christ before you. Christ behind you. Christ on your side. Christ leading you. Christ is everything. And the relief of knowing this is the plan and he's coming again. And that's what Paul tells the church in Thessalonica. Hold fast. This is the plan. So rejoice always knowing that he holds you. And you do that knowing the great relief of the gospel. Knowing the excitement of what he's doing now, even when it feels like you're being crushed. Because there also is a future hope. And all of it leads to excitement. There's exuberance in us. And we do it out of a heart of gratitude. Because even when we don't feel it, he's there. And he's leading us. And your destiny is united with him. No longer thrown aside. No longer a child of wrath. But now part of the bride, the princess of the kingdom. You're his queen. And he loves you. And this is your destiny. Isn't God good? He's so good. Thank you. We have a round of applause. Great job, everybody. <clears throat> yeah, Luke, well done on the hair and makeup, Luke. Tony, you did great. This is our hope. This is our life. And also, life is hard sometimes. And so I'm telling you this to say this. Hold fast to the gospel. Let the gratitude of God, the excitement, the relief of knowing him, permeate every part of your life. And when we come to this meal, remember that he proposed marriage to you while you were dead, while you were filthy, while you were undesirable. And now that you're alive with him, he's adorning you with beautiful garments to be presented to the Son again as corporately part together of what God is doing. If today you don't know Jesus, if you don't know the relief of the gospel, you cannot do this on your own. Cannot. So today, submit to him and say, Lord, forgive me. I will trust you because I know I can't do it. And that's the heart of the gospel. We trust him more than we trust ourselves or anything else. If you do know him, renew in yourself gratitude. Renew in yourself excitement. Renew in yourself thanksgiving. Renew in yourself the, the relief of the gospel. And if you have felt crushed in one area, hold on to the other two. If you have no excitement, then rejoice in gratitude and relief, and the excitement will come. If you have no relief, if you have no excitement, 
then rejoice in the gratitude and God will inflame the others because it's not an emotion, it's a state. A state of rejoicing that you are called to. And as you do that, you will testify to the Lord's goodness because you are being who you were meant to be. Amen? Amen. Amen. Will you stand? I'm going to pray for you. Father, thank you for your gospel. Thank you, Lord, that you are good. Lord, even when things are pulling us down and we can't feel like we can rejoice, thank you that rejoicing is not just an emotion. But Lord, instead, we rejoice because of the great hope you've given us in the gospel, in your son, in life, and that you are returning to claim us. Lord, we are yours, and we confess to you sometimes that we feel crushed. But Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, bolster our hearts up in you, God. Help us, Lord, to remember the relief of your gospel. Help us, Lord, to have excitement again where excitement seems to wane. And help us, God, to live lives of gratitude as we look to you and trust you. We praise you, Lord, because of your great Son. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, know his peace, know his grace, and know his gospel that he has relieved you of your great debt, that you are now his. God bless you. Have a great week. And Lord willing, we'll see you next week. Thank you all. We're dismissed. Bless you.